You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations on the big issues affecting our lives and the people working for change. And big thanks to Black Noise Radio for their great show today. 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri and Bungarong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians and caretakers of this land. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. And today on the show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Maria Tanyag, and she's been with us on 3CR a number of times over the past couple of years to talk about the importance of women's knowledge and contribution in relation to climate change and how that knowledge gets sidelined. We are seeing a, a gender light implementation and gender light implementation is really gender but without politics, gender without land, gender without economic resource redistribution. That's Maria Tanyag from ANU and she'll tell us more about that later in the show. David Kelly talks to us about the crisis in public housing in Victoria and what the lockdown of the nine public housing towers in North Melbourne and Flemington last week actually tells us about that crisis. But first up, I'm speaking with Greg Denham. Greg's a member of LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, and a long-time advocate of drug policy reform. He's currently working as an outreach worker, and he's speaking to us about how COVID-19 has affected his work on the streets. People that I see have chronic dependency issues, chronic and often chaotic. In terms of their drug of choice, most of them want to use heroin, but often heroin can be difficult to get and the purity has gone down and the price has gone up because of lack of supplies. What can you do for people in that situation? A lot of them are seeking to get on to um, pharmacotherapy, which is methadone, suboxone. And there's a new program called Depot, which is a once a month shot, like a suboxone methadone type preparation, which seems to be working really well for a lot of people. So getting them into that type of drug treatment program, we have a number of um, people who don't have a regular place to stay. And people that are out there on the street, they're finding it pretty tough. And there's a lot of anxiety out there. A lot of the agencies that they would normally access just to get basics like food and shelter, things that we take for granted, are really challenging at the moment because a lot of agencies, they're restricted or even closed. So accessing food can be really challenging. And there's some, some agencies out there doing some fantastic work getting food out onto the streets for people who ability to cook food, stoves and microwaves and that type of thing. Again, what we take for granted, they often have to be made up packs with ready-to-eat food. So it's the basics People often do live from day to day. And that's what we're looking at, how we can get people to survive this very, very difficult period. Greg, we spoke, I think, about four months ago now, three or four months ago. And at that time, you said that there was a need for more resources to come into the field. Has that happened? The housing response has been fantastic. There's been a lot of hotel, motel spaces made available through increased federal and state funding over the last 
two or three months, which has been great. It's all short-term accommodation. So in the long term, obviously, we would like to see more sustainable housing made available. A lot of uh, faith-based agencies, Binnies, Salvos, have uh, increased their provision of food. A number of agencies increased their outreach work. The fact that many agencies now can't let people through the door anymore, they've got restrictions in terms of numbers and how they can let people in to use you know, showers and toilets and that type of thing. So they've increased mobile programs. From what you're saying, it does sound like resources have gone out. It has been. We're finding there's a fair degree of mobility amongst the people that are living rough. It does make it difficult to um, sustain that engagement with people, as it always is difficult because people do tend to move around. But agencies are really, whether it's health, welfare, social, government, non-government, faith-based, they're really teaming up well. They're really working out how they can provide each other with resources, sharing resources, communicating better, providing some support in those people that have particularly complex and difficult situations. So it really has been remarkable how the agencies have banded together and taken a really positive approach towards collaboration. It's great to hear some good news, Greg, because so much of the news has been difficult and I guess out of some of these things people will learn that these are better approaches to be more coordinated hopefully some of these things will be long lasting. Yeah well I, I would hope so I think from what I've read you know the way it's in which the media is reporting a lot of this stuff and the stuff that I'm picking up from other people who work in this area that it's been a great lesson in terms of how agencies can work it's probably going to change the way in which workplace practices are implemented in the future. The, the broader impact that they can have through collaboration. How are you and other workers protecting yourselves? Well, we have what we call PPE, which is personal protection equipment. We have gloves, we have masks, we have hand wash, sanitizer. We use that. We're required to wipe down vehicles, wipe down equipment. We do come across many people who still want to shake your hand, little things like that. And it feels really awkward. You know, you, you say to people, no, we can't shake your hand because the whole COVID-19 thing. And, and there is a lack of knowledge amongst many people out on the street about what's going on. They don't quite understand how serious this is. So uh, we need to be mindful and educate people. You know, we always ask people, have you got a runny nose, sore throat, temperature? feeling tired, that type of thing. So in that situation, we say, look, go and get tested. But people are difficult to contact. If we were asked to go and get tested, we would know exactly what to do. You know, we know where to go, who to speak to. But many people who we speak with may not even have a phone. They may not even have a place to live. You know, we have many challenges when we do speak with people out on the street. One of the things that you've just said has really struck me because I think when you're out making contact, with people who are experienced disadvantage in various ways or distant from the community, to be able to shake the hand, to be able to touch must be important and to not be able to do that. And hugging, hugging, like hugging is a big thing for many people. It means so much to people when they hug each other that it's that warmth and affection that many of them are really longing for and often don't don't get them. Many of them have got traumatised histories. They have a very small friendship group but often that friendship group is tested particularly in terms of the illicit drug market you know it can be violent and risky as well so you know that trust and that ability to hug someone and know that person's your friend is is huge amongst that community so but getting the message across that you can't do that anymore you know you need to stay 1.5 meters away from someone it's not that it's not well received it's almost like people say well i don't really care like I, i'm not i'm not concerned about it 
people often have many different types of physical and mental health conditions. One extra, you know, necessarily going to bother them all that much. There's other things with the priorities and, and concerns. And also further alienation by not being able to make that physical contact. I mean, it is heartbreaking, that's for sure. Greg, what are you anticipating for the next six weeks of lockdown? I think for many people who really the engagement on the street is quite critical and uh, getting resources out there, getting people out there, linking them into the housing linking them into health services that are still operating, ensuring that um, their immediate needs are met like food and that type of thing is really critical. So I think that the more we can provide in terms of resources for people in that situation is really, really important. Greg Denham, and important to keep an eye on as uh, over the next six weeks and, and beyond. Greg's also a spokesperson for LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnerships in Australia, and uh, he edits the newsletter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. You're on 3CR. Great to have your company this afternoon. And uh, the show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard. Well, last week I think we were all in a state of shock to hear about the hard lockdown in the nine community housing towers in North Melbourne and Flemington. As the story unfolded, the great work being done by people living in the towers as advocates and in support for each other over that time became very clear, as did the support being offered by the general community. Dr. David Kelly, a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT, says that those problems reflect years of neglect of the whole public housing system by the state government. The real productivity that came from the hard lockdown was between grassroots organisations and residents organising themselves. And we make the point in the article that trust the residents. They were the ones already doing the hard work. They're best placed to continue doing that work. And so when we were talking about vulnerability, we didn't mean that they themselves are vulnerable, but that a structure that's surrounding them has created this situation that renders their very being there vulnerable. So what we might think of as housing security, it's completely undermined when a crisis like this comes in. We see that the steady chipping away at the hard and soft infrastructure over the last 40 to 50 years has really come into focus with the event of the crisis vulnerability has been created by a faulty system. That's right. Decades of divestment, outsourcing of maintenance, security, even the management, and it's been speeding up in the last few years. So what we're seeing is a reduced capacity for the infrastructure to deal with external shocks, such as a pandemic or a recession, or anything else for that matter. You also talk about the amount of public housing in Victoria declining in real terms for at least two decades. We're seeing public housing decline. We're also seeing the investment decline. The state is withdrawing from its responsibilities as a social landlord. Social housing is an umbrella term for public and community housing. Community housing is managed and or owned by non-government, private, not-for-profits. And there are very distinct differences between public and community. But what we're seeing is 
a growth in the community housing sector and a decline in the public housing sector. Essentially, what's driving the growth in the community housing sector is stock transfers, stock from the public purse, from the public sector into a private holding. And ultimately, it means for residents, higher rents, less stability, increased risk of eviction, and you're not covered by the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. So this is just some of the things that are going on behind the scenes, but basically it's just the complete withdrawal from public housing. Yeah, I mean, given that housing is is fundamental, being able to create a, a stable life, to find work. I mean, you need an address to do so many things. This really is an abandonment of responsibility from what you're saying. It is. And we can't think of very many reasons why this is the case. Because even if we take a completely economic view on things, the most cost-effective way of providing housing for low-income people and people and even key workers like what we might term affordable housing is direct investment in public housing so there was a report that came out a year and a bit ago which looked at housing as social infrastructure and basically their finding was that if you take all the various financing models available to you the cheapest and most cost-effective way of providing housing is direct investment in public housing. Just build it, just fund it. But we're not seeing that happen. So we really can't think of very many reasons why the government wouldn't do this. It's all bound up in this bit of a global movement towards the hyper-commodification of housing, which means that less and less people can have access to it, less and less people have certainty of tenure, which then undermines their sense of security and well-being. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with David Kelly from RMIT about the neglect of public housing in Victoria. And as he's pointed out, there's a big difference between public housing and community housing, and he goes on to talk more about the problems with community housing. There's a lack of accountability once you take things out of public hands. You can't submit an FOI request to a community housing organisation. You can't figure out what's going on. They don't produce annual reports that are available to the public. They don't have a board of directors that you can directly have input into. So it's a way of really displacing accountability. One of the things you talked about also is the way both government and media have stigmatised people who live in public housing. What role has the media played in this? Largely, the media are ambivalent towards public housing, but we do see quite a lot of segments where you'll have problematic houses having a blue on the street and that becomes an hour-long episode. It's just these stories that continually perpetuate themselves. We find it really intensifies when we have these narratives that say the high-rises were a failure. High-rises aren't a failure. They work perfectly fine in the private sector. Why can't they work perfectly fine in the public sector? It's a narrative of decline that's really being produced. When they were built, they were seen as utopian projects. Over time, we've shifted our idea about what that utopian project is or was. And it all feeds into this narrative of decline, which then produces a business case to renew the estates. And renewal is sounds good, but it, it's actually a bit of a Trojan horse because you displace the people who live there, breaking up the community, you demolish the, the buildings, and then you reintroduce 
an engineered community, which is likely to be 70% private, 30% public or social. And the benefits are said to flow towards low-income people, but there's absolutely no evidence that mixed communities provide better outcomes for low-income people. But that's the sort of conclusions we end up coming up with when we buy into the narrative decline. What would you like to see happen? A rapid build program that's really extensive, that really addresses what the need is. Across Australia, 100 low-income units per day for 20 years. In order to meet that demand, we just need to start building. We just need to start making inroads into it. And what you'll find is the larger um, proportion that public housing takes in the overall housing stock, the more easing that will happen for the cohorts of people who are stuck in the middle, who might be in overcrowded private rentals, um, suboptimal dwellings, um, share houses, those sorts of things. Things will start to ease up for them when we have a larger proportion of the housing stock that's not tied to the market. We need to move back towards a decommodified version of housing, housing as right, not as private property. Are there things that people listening can do? There, there are groups around Melbourne who are doing great work and they need support. They need people who can start making noise and start demanding that the government engage in a build program that actually addresses the bulging wait list. There's, there's a bunch of groups doing the work. People need to educate themselves on the difference between public and community. That's actually a big issue that doesn't get a lot of traction. And just understand the scale of what's needed to address the issue. The scale is massive public investment. These little pithy thousand dwelling announcements that we get every now and then do not make a dent. They do nothing. They don't even keep pace with the expansion of demand. People need to start demanding that the housing minister, that the premier, that treasury reorientate towards housing as social infrastructure. This has been an ongoing issue for a long, long time. And as you point out in your paper, in an affluent country like Australia, this really shouldn't be happening. This is the issue. There's just no need. Victoria has the lowest proportion of public housing in the country. But by some metrics, they also have the lowest proportion of public housing in the OECD. It's tragic. It's really, really tragic. Dr. David Kelly, a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT, and he's been conducting research on the displacement in public housing renewal programs and the social mix. Lots of ideas about how we can all get involved in this really important area. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. We're coming up to the end of the show. And today on Listening Notes... We've spoken with outreach worker Greg Denham about how COVID-19 has affected people who are homeless or living precariously on the streets. We've also heard from Dr. David Kelly about how the pandemic has exposed the crisis in public housing in Victoria. Big thank you to them both. 
We were hoping to bring you an interview from Maria Tanyag, who's conducted research in Kenya and the Pacific on ways that women's voices have been sidelined in decision-making processes addressing climate change. But we've run out of time. So apologies to Maria and to all listeners who were really looking forward to that interview. I know I was. And we'll begin the show with it next week. It's been great having you with us here on 3CR today. Stay tuned for Diaspora Blues coming up next. And given our themes of homelessness and housing on today's show, I'm going to go out with a classic Australian song on homelessness and uh, just a warning to Aboriginal people who may be listening. The person singing the song has passed away. Here's Naranjari Woman, the great Ruby Hunter with Down City Streets. A song called Down City Streets. I don't have to say any more about it because wherever there's a city, there's street people.
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.